This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The bulk of the constitutional scholarship says that it's not likely to pass constitutional muster. And the bulk of constitutional scholars turned out to be right about the Biden administration's second eviction moratorium. It took the Supreme Court less than a week to lift the moratorium, ending protections for millions of people who've fallen behind on their rent during the pandemic. My guest is Neil Devins, a professor at William & Mary Law School. Neil, this decision didn't come as a surprise, did it? No, not at all. The Supreme Court had foreshadowed it in its earlier ruling. And President Biden himself had said that he anticipated a defeat and that it was a long shot. So what was the reasoning in this unsigned opinion? Well, the reasoning was that the statute did not give the CDC authority to extend the moratorium, that uh, the CDC could deal with the spread of communicable diseases, but not things indirect, such as the moratorium, where you where you're not regulating the actual spread of the disease, you're regulating individuals who might later spread the disease. The court said the CDC had power with respect to things like fumigation and the facility itself and the spread of diseases directly related to the facility, but not indirect things like individuals who might spread the disease through their movement. It had to be the building itself. So that was unsigned. But in dissent, Justice Breyer, for the three liberals, what did he say? He read the statute more broadly. He said that the authority given the CDC to deal with the spread of disease was a broad authority and that the second sentence of the statute, which the majority focused in on and said, look, what the statute speaks to are these direct matters, not indirect matters. Justice Breyer said we shouldn't view that specification as undercutting the broad delegation in the first sentence of the statute. Explain why the majority's opinion was not signed while the dissent was. Well, typically in these shadow DACA cases, it's not a formal opinion of the Supreme Court. The case was not formally briefed. It was not subject to oral argument. It was not part of the normal flow of things. This was an emergency order, an issue involving a stay and an injunction. So when these rulings are issued, they're typically issued as per curiam orders. Typically, there's no rationale associated with them. And occasionally, a justice will file a concurring or dissenting opinion. So that's just the structure of these shadow DACA cases. And what's amazing about this case is it looks very much like an opinion of the Supreme Court. Each side writes about eight pages. Each side goes through their reasoning. It's very striking. And shadow docket being the cases that are handled on an emergency basis. So... President Biden had said, basically, that this would buy some time. Yes, and that is essentially what the Biden administration did, is that they made a decision to do something that was essentially obviously political. The president more or less said that they were buying time and willing to pursue a losing legal argument in order to buy time. And that may not win many friends on the Supreme Court, and it's an interesting question that this will come back to haunt the Biden administration in any way 
if the Supreme Court feels that they acted somehow in bad faith, pursuing a case just to delay the inevitable as opposed to pursuing a case because they thought they were right on the merits. But that's an open question as to how it will affect the Biden administration before the court. But the court did rule in a way that is not great for the Biden administration, not just in this case, but in other cases going forward, because the court went on to say that even if the statute were not as clear in saying that the Biden administration does not have this authority, the Biden administration would still have lost the case because to give this type of power to the agency would require a very explicit delegation, a very clear delegation. So what the Supreme Court said essentially was that for the Biden administration to have prevailed, the statute would have had to clearly give them the authority. So even an ambiguous statute would have been a statute that would not have cut cut it as far as the Supreme Court was concerned. And that's going to be a, a line of reasoning that will be problematic in future cases where you have an ambiguous statute and the Biden administration wants to argue that its understanding of the ambiguous statute should prevail. And then the party on the other side can simply say, look, it needs to be clear. That's what the Supreme Court said in the shadow docket case. It needs to be clear. And that type of holding could be a problem in future cases for the Biden administration or any other administration that's advancing a view of the law that is not clearly backed by the statute itself. Is that the Chevron doctrine? Well, it, it's it's a cousin of Chevron, so to speak. The court doesn't specifically say this is about Chevron, but it is in the same family, the same type of issues with, where we deal with the question of whether statutes are clear or unclear. It's, 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 it's akin to Chevron. I think the court distinguishes a little bit because it talks about the scope of the delegation and Chevron is a much more across the board rule. And here the court is speaking to delegations of broad authority and the need for clarity in that type of a case. But it's very close to Chevron. I think that's a very good question. This was the second time in a week that the Supreme Court, with the conservatives in the majority and the liberals in the minority, dealt blows to the Biden administration. Are we starting to see a sharp divide on the court with the new conservative majority? It's to be seen, but it's obviously not a good sign for the Biden administration. In particular, the more that the six conservative justices perceive that the Biden administration is willing to play fast and loose to advance its legal policy priorities, the more pushback they're likely to get from that group of six. And the way this case was handled was not a good way for the Biden administration to present itself. It's hard to make predictions. Justice Barrett is new to the court. The dynamics of the new court are yet to come together. But as an ingredient in the mix, this points to that group of justices sticking together and having a view of presidential power, a view of statutory interpretation that may not work well for the Biden administration. Now, it may not work well for the administration after the Biden administration, too. This may be something where the court does not like delegations of power, where the court does not like deferring to agencies when there are ambiguous statutes. It may be a moment in time where the court seeks to limit the power of government. I think that uh, it's increasingly the case that 
the shadow docket is becoming as almost as important as the merits docket. Um, it, you know, I mean, again, it's not resulting in decisions published in the United States reports, but in, in terms of what the justices are doing in their day-to-day -day lives, um, it's increasingly a big part of that, and it affects, obviously, how they work. You know, it's one thing to have months and months to get an opinion out. It's another thing to have these emergency orders that are done on such a quick timeline. Um, I think it also cuts against collegiality on the court because you don't have the ability for things to play out over an extended period of time, and it's much more of a Rorschach test situation, and that may, you know, that may make it harder for the justices um, to to work cooperatively on the marriage docket and, and, and forge these sort of unanimous opinions that they were so successful at forging last term. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a major development. This is, you know, the court has changed fundamentally because of it. Uh, and whether it will persist, I mean, I guess we'll find out, but uh, it's showing no signs of letting up. That's Neil Devins of William & Mary Law School. Coming up next, gender pronouns in court. This is Bloomberg. The Biden administration has abandoned the standards that the Trump administration put into place that were effective in slowing the number of people coming across the border. But now the Biden administration is being forced to reinstate a Trump administration immigration policy by the Supreme Court, just what Texas Governor Greg Abbott called for. A divided Supreme Court has ordered the White House to revive the Trump migrant protection protocols, known as Remain in Mexico, which forced migrants to wait in Mexico while seeking asylum here. Over the dissent of the three liberal justices, the court refused to block a federal judge's ruling in a case brought by Texas and Missouri, the same lineup of justices that dealt Biden a blow over his eviction moratorium. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight, and the former head of the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, there was a one-paragraph order. Did the court give any real explanation or direction for the Biden administration? Well, no, they did not go into great detail. They affirmed it as arbitrary and capricious. And so what that means is the Biden administration... Just like what happened with the DACA litigation, and they actually cited to the DACA litigation, has to either give a new reason why it is rescinding the migration protection protocol, or it has to implement it. But the problem with the new reason is that the court has basically said that no reason is going to be good enough if there's not sufficient detention capacity because the lower court said that there's only two things you can do with an asylum seeker who crosses the border. Place them in detention here in America or put them under the migration protection protocol. There isn't a third option called release these people into the United States. And so if they try to do any memo that permits that, they're probably going to keep running into the same problem. And so what they really are going to need to do at this point is either explore the options of showing an impracticality of doing it, which will happen in contempt proceedings, or try to get Congress to defund the program as part of either the reconciliation bill that might be moving or an appropriations bill. Why do you think that the administration drafting a new memo with a new reason won't change the decision of the federal judge that this will go back to? 
so the court said that the reasoning given was arbitrary and capricious, that saying that this program didn't help to reduce illegal immigration is disproven by the fact that as soon as the program was rescinded, the numbers have gone higher, which may be coincidental, but the stats are that way if you were to look at them without any context. So basically all of the reasons that were given, the court found to be unjustified as a result of the evidence. So the court said that, yes, conceivably new reasoning can be given, but I believe that no matter what the reasoning that would be given, because the court has already reached the finding that there's only two acceptable legal alternatives, detention or this migration protection protocol, it's not going to accept any reasoning given for the ending of the program. This is the Supreme Court telling the White House what to do about immigration policy and foreign affairs, forcing it basically to engage in negotiations with Mexico. Isn't this far outside what the Supreme Court has done in the past? I think the issue is going to be teed up more appropriately in a contempt slash sanctions context than in this context, because I think they've been trying to skirt the issue in the lower court and the Fifth Circuit, and I guess now in the Supreme Court, by saying, look, give it a try. See if you can at least do the program. But if Mexico ends up saying, no, we refuse and we have no duty under any protocols of any kind to take non-Mexican nationals back into Mexico that have arrived in the United States, you know, why would we have to take them back? Then it's going to be up to the courts to decide, hey, are you going to throw Joe Biden in jail? Are you going to throw Ali Mayorkas in jail? Who are you going to throw in jail for disregarding this order if Mexico is not letting you send people in? I mean, the way Trump had gotten this resolved was that he had actually threatened Mexico about tariff rates. And so is that what they're going to demand? Is the Supreme Court going to say you have to make a similar threat about tariff rates? And then if not, you have to raise the tariffs? I mean, at that level is where you start to see, okay, now we really do have judicial scrutiny into things that are way past where courts have ever wanted to go. But I think what they're saying at the moment is, You have to at least try to make some agreement with Mexico to accept people. And if you can't, then I guess that will be assessed in a sanctions slash contempt hearing. But just by saying you have to engage in these negotiations with Mexico, doesn't that go beyond what a court should do? It's interfering with foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, theoretically speaking, it is a expansion of where courts have ever gone before. And I think they're just hoping that they don't have to get to the nuts and bolts of the issue of was the consultation with Mexico meaningful enough. I think at that point, people will start to get very, very uncomfortable. But the fact that this door was even opened, as you say, is a potentially historic fact that hadn't happened previously. What do you make of the fact that it was divided six to three down ideological lines? I think that Justice Roberts probably was looking for this opportunity to say, hey, look, the DACA decision that I wrote goes both ways. And if you rescind some of these memos that we think make sense either way, one way or the other, we're going to be tough on you. And so I think that would be Justice Roberts' explanation. I think the other five justices simply thought of this as 
something where they probably thought that this administration was not sufficiently enforcing the border, given the statistics of the border apprehension. And so from their perspective, it was fine to keep the injunction going. But certainly, if the tables were turned, I don't know that the justices would have allowed such a judicial interference in what is normally a complete presidential prerogative. So I don't really know what to make of this. This is a brand new day in immigration law, and it's going to be very interesting. If Texas slash Missouri really does move for sanctions here because they don't like how the program is being implemented, that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road here. So now the attorneys general of Missouri and Texas declared this an important win over the Biden administration. Is it an important win? Well, it is a dramatic win for sure. Having the court do something that probably would never do under almost any other circumstance, people would have ranked the odds of victory very, very low at the outset of this litigation. But in terms of the long-lasting implications, we will see. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.